Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's Word. The reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the text will be on the screen up there as I read. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, church. I know there's a lot of visitors here. So my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. Welcome. It's good to see everybody. Before I dismiss kids through second grade for Children's Church, a big reminder to parents that you need to pick these kids up uh, right after the sermon and bring them back into the service. We want them to witness uh, the baptisms. Uh, so please, please get your kids right away, uh, right when the sermon is finished. We are in the middle of a series on the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, so many of you are just joining us for a part of that, but we've started with chapter 1, we've been working our way through it, and we skipped over some chapters. Last week I finished up chapter 10, and we're going to get back to chapter 11, but because it is Easter Sunday, because we're celebrating the resurrection, we skipped ahead to another section and a topic that Paul takes on where he deals with the doctrine of the resurrection. So we are going to uh, unpack 1 Corinthians 15 over the next three Sundays, and this Sunday, of course, we're going to do the first 11 verses. Let's go ahead and pray and then dive into 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pray. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your Spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of Scripture, and your Holy Spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge Him as Lord. So we ask now, Lord, that you would send your Spirit right now to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the Easter Gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that I deal with being uh, a pastor is I have to come up with sermon illustrations and sometimes you have to dig into ones that embarrass you. So I'm gonna uh, go ahead and open with a somewhat embarrassing story. 
uh, that happened to me. So one of the things I get to do is get to develop friendships with other church leaders and uh, one of my elders and his family typically invites my family over quite often during the summertime and he makes uh, these chicken shawarma wraps and these gyros and other types of things and we get to feast in his backyard and get to enjoy one another's company. One of those times we were just sharing stories and at the time I had an issue going on in my house where there was a wasp nest that was living in the siding of my house and it was ginormous. There was thousands of these. It was like, it was like one of the ten plagues had showed up to my doorstep and I was dealing with this. Well, this friend, this elder also had the same situation. I believe it happened in his garage and he told me how he dealt with it, but he made a huge mistake that he advised me not to do. And that big mistake was don't, whatever you do, do not cover up the hole that they're coming out of because if you do, they will find another way out. And I listened to him, I understood what he said, and I was like, yes, I'll take that to heart. I didn't do that. I went home and did something different. And part of the reason, I just need to be upfront, I am driven by something I've in inherited from my ancestors of being a little bit tight with money. So I didn't want to pay somebody to come and get rid of these things. So I thought in my head, I'm going to try to do it myself. And I realized my buddy, you know, he kind of messed up, he covered it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to nuke those things with a bunch of different, like, things that I think will kill them, and then I'm gonna cover it up. So I dumped a bunch of bug killer in there and some bleach and even put like just terrible stuff. I put some kale in there and just like, just, and then covered it up to see what would happen afterwards, right? And it seemed to be fine. There was no sight of these things for over 24 hours. Well, the next day I remember going on a walk with some friends and my wife and we were going to an open house that was happening in our neighborhood, went in and checked the house and I get a frantic call from my kids. There are wasps everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, they're outside. They must have got out of, the, got out of my you know, plug. And they're like, no, they are in the house. They're in the TV room. They're in my bedroom. And they are frantic, almost on the verge of tears, because what was given to me as a warning actually happened, even though I ignored it. I heard what he said, but I ignored it, and it was the most important message he gave to me when we had fellowship on his back lawn. This is something that we do. We think we know better. We think we're going to figure it out. We're not going to make the same mistakes. And people do this with their faith, and this is what's happening in the book of 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthian Christians have forgotten, neglected, what was of first importance for their faith. It's a phrase that Paul uses in first, verse 3, that you, they received something that Paul passed on to them, the gospel that was of first importance. There's all these other things that Paul probably taught him, but he said this was the most important thing. Don't neglect it. Don't forget it. Don't think you can improve on it and do better. But sometimes we do forget it, or maybe we don't literally forget the gospel as Christians, but we set it aside. We disregard its importance. We de-emphasize its power and truth. This is what was going on in uh, the church of Corinth at the time. Verse 12 tells us, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So over time, it seems that people came to Christ in this city of Corinth, this ancient city. They believed in the gospel and everything about it. But over time, they rejected the bodily part of the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. 
They rejected Christ's bodily resurrection and the future reality and the future promise that Christians, too, will be raised bodily from the dead. And it was these so-called, as you've been getting to know these folks throughout the sermon series of Corinthians, it's these Corinthians that think of themselves as strong and knowledgeable and these hyper-spiritualized, big-shot Christians. And they just got to the point that they believed that a corpse coming back to life sounded a little crazy. Maybe it'd be better to believe that it was just a spiritual thing and just deny it altogether. And Paul is going to bring us back to what is of first importance of the gospel. And he's going to call us all in this sermon to receive the gospel again, to remember the gospel, and to deeply reflect on the gospel. So let's see this gospel that we've received. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Verses 1 through 3. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain, for I received what I passed on to you as of first importance. The gospel has been received and believed in Corinth, and they're taking their stand on it, at least they had. And when you take your stand on something, it's something that you have put your trust in. You have given your life to that thing. And for the Christian, the gospel is something that we've received from the past, which we stand in the present, and which we are being saved for the future. But if you have claimed to stake in your, taking your stand on the gospel, but turn from that gospel rather than hold on to it, then Paul says you have believed in vain. And these Christians are turning from the gospel by rejecting the bodily resurrection of the dead. And such a belief not only reveals the vanity of one's faith, but if it were true, as they said, that the resurrection didn't happen bodily from the dead, then he's going to go on and, and argue that the entire Christian faith is pointless. If this didn't really happen to Jesus, then why are you gathering? Why are you singing? Why are you laying down your life for something that didn't really happen? And that's what he really unpacks in next week's section for us. So Paul reminds them that this gospel is not something that he invented. It's a confession or a tradition that was handed down to Paul, and he handed it down to these Christians in Corinth. Think of a tradition in your life that you received. It's maybe something that you do instinctively because it was given to you because you didn't make it up. You didn't create the tradition. You just inherited it. Minnesotans have a lot of traditions. They get, uh, make hot dishes instead of casseroles. That's one tradition. We play duck, duck, gray duck instead of duck, duck, goose. And we also, we Minnesotans get the tradition, the heritage, the spiritual gift of being able to disrupt zipper merges rather than do them correctly, right? This is all the heritage of what it means to be Minnesotans. So too, the gospel has been passed down to us. We did not create it. God purposed in Christ before the foundation of the world 
that he would redeem a people for himself, and this plan has been accomplished in the gospel. And the scriptures that we read are simply witnesses that wrote down and what they saw with their eyes and what they heard with their ears about this gospel, what God has done throughout history to redeem a people for himself. And if you believe in the gospel today, it's because you have received that inheritance from someone else who received it from someone else, and so on, and so on, and so on. One of the uh, ways that I remember this reality is just by the name of the city of St. Paul. I've said this before at Trinity, but I know some of you are visiting today, but St. Paul wasn't always called St. Paul. Some of you know the old name of our city. It used to be called Pig's Eye after a lazy-eyed saloon owner that used to work the soldiers with his uh, cocktails over at Fort Snelling. So that's what it used to be called. Welcome to Pig's Eye, everybody. Wouldn't that be great for tourism nowadays? But the reason it was changed to St. Paul was because one of the first missionaries to this area said, that's a stupid name. Let's give it a better name. Not, a lazy, not naming this after a lazy-eyed saloon owner. How about St. Paul, the writer of the letter of 1 Corinthians that we are unpacking right now? Even this is something that's proof that the gospel is something that we inherit that we get passed down to us from others. Paul not only reminds us and the Corinthians to receive the gospel, but also to remember the gospel. And it's in this section where he starts using the basic categories of the gospel message, foundational categories of the gospel message, so, that, so much so that if you've grown up in church, this is going to be review, but that's the point, is to go back to the basics. Now, I know on a Sunday like this, sometimes those that gather with us might not consider themselves necessarily part of the Christian faith, and we are glad that you're here. We're glad that you had a curiosity to maybe come back in Easter and to check things out again. But one of the things to do, especially if you're skeptical about the faith, is really to tune in right now, because this is getting to the heart of what Christianity is all about. If you really want to understand the Christian faith, you have to learn the basic grammar that's the foundation of the Christian faith. This is what you have to do to understand anybody's faith or anybody's communication, is to understand how are they using these words and what do they mean. Let's say that you're trying to get to know a teenager, you do the same thing. You need to understand Gen Z lingo, right? This is something I've had to do in raising uh, kids myself, is to learn how Gen Z folks talk, because sometimes it sounds like they're speaking in tongues. I need an interpreter. What does this phrase mean? When my kids tell me no cap, what that means is it's for real. I'm not lying. This is true. No cap, right? If they say, and this happened to me, in the line of Chick-fil-A the other day when we went there, I was confused about what register to go to. My teenager says to me, Dad, you lost? You need a map? Another great Gen Z phrase for those that are confused and look like they need some direction in life. Or one of my favorite Gen Z phrases is if you're spending too much time on screen time, on your smartphone, you tell somebody to go touch grass. Get off the phone and get outside and do something in nature. Love that. Touch grass. Great Gen Z phrase, all right? So this is what we do to get to know people. You're using these words and these phrases. What do they mean? And here, especially if you're a skeptic, especially if you feel that you're maybe outside of this faith looking in, this is a time to lean in and to really understand the phrases of the gospel that Paul is about to say, because this is what it's all about. Look at verses 3 through 5. For I received 
what I pass on to you is of first importance, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve. That is the Gospel, that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, He was raised on the third day, and that He appeared because He was alive. That's the Gospel. Let's unpack some of these phrases. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Sin is our biggest problem and the biggest problem that's facing our world. And we and us and everybody were absolutely helpless to do anything about the power of sin. You're not going to beat it on your own power, your own righteousness, your own intellect. Sin will take you out, and its goal is to keep pulling you towards death, and you need a power greater than sin to pull you back towards eternal life. And that's the good news, that Christ died for our sins. The word that Christians often use to describe that is atonement, that Jesus' death atoned for the sins of the world. And what does that mean? There's a great illustration I read and was reminded of this week about what it means that Christ died for our sins. What exactly does that look like? And he uses the illustration, this is from a, an evangelist from uh, Sri Lanka. And this evangelist uses the illustration of thinking about like a wound that you have or a pimple or something like that, an infection that you have on your body and you pick it. And what comes out? Pus comes out. You ever know what pus is? There's a bunch of different gross things in there, but one of the things that's in there is dead white blood cells. And why did they die? Because you were infected with something that's trying to kill you, but your immune system has a bunch of things, but one of them being white blood cells that attacked back. And they died so that they could kill and get rid of this infection so that you can live. That's what it means that Christ died for our sins. Christ laid down his life, and he took that upon himself, and sin upon himself. He took the infection of sin upon himself and died so that we may live. Paul says that Jesus was buried, that he really did die. This was no spiritual death. It was a real death where the corpse of Jesus laid in a tomb, it wasn't some type of mistake where the Romans thought he was dead, but he just kind of resuscitated in the tomb, and they were like, whoops, I guess we forgot to check. That's not what happened. Jesus really did die, and he was put in a tomb. And here we are reacquainted with the doctrine of the incarnation, where Christians confess that Jesus was fully man and fully divine, meaning that eternal life put on flesh, dwelt among us, and died on a cross and laid in a tomb. And this is what's so remarkable about the gospel message, is we're talking about eternal life. Jesus is eternal life, but he puts on a body, fully human, which means he is capable of dying, which he did on the cross. And they laid him in a tomb, and it sets up this, 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 this big question in the gospel narratives, what's going to happen? Is he just going to stay dead because he became human? Is this eternal life being defeated by sin, death, and evil? What happens? What happens? The gospel asks this question. What happens when eternal life puts on flesh and dies and is buried in a tomb? And then the confession goes on that he was raised 
on the third day because it is impossible for eternal life to die. Jesus is fully man and he's fully God, meaning that death had no chance and sin had no chance. Injustices in our world will have no chance with the renewing power of the resurrection that's still at work today. And that's the heart of our celebration here at Trinity City Church for Easter. It's the heart of the celebration of the global church around the world where we confess this reality yet again that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And it happened Paul says, and you see this, he emphasizes it over and over and over again, according to the scriptures. He, he died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. And he's emphasizing that this was all part of God's plan. Everything you read about in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the New. All of God's promises that he made are becoming realized in this moment of the gospel message becoming true in history. And that's what he's emphasizing there with the phrase, he appeared. Christ raised from the dead on the third day, and he appeared. And then he really unpacks this. Look at verses 6 through 8. After that, he appeared for more to, to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he taking all this effort to name these witnesses? And it's because, again, Paul is pushing back on those who claim that the resurrection of the dead is not bodily. He says to say that is not to acknowledge reality. Witness after witness, Paul says and reminds them, saw Jesus raised from the dead with their own eyes. And if you read the Gospels, not only did these people see Jesus with their own eyes, but some of them touched his physical resurrected body with their hands. And Jesus sat down on ta at tables and ate real food and put it into his resurrected body and had fellowship with them around the table. And this is all to say that what we celebrate this morning isn't some type of dreamed-up religion of some type of thing that we hope will happen, but it's some type of wishful thinking. No, this is grounded in something real that happened in history where people with their own eyes saw it and touched it with their own hands because this is the Son of God raised from the dead. Not some type of dream, but history that is true and, and it's real. The gospel is not some type of weird superstition. It's a reality. Superstition would be something that I believe as a Minnesotan about why it's still cold and why it's still snowing right now. See, I kept my snowblower available, but one of you didn't. You put it away for the year. And because you did that, it's snowing and it's still cold. That's some superstition, right? But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not some weird superstition like that. It's something that's real, that happened in history 2,000 years ago in a real place with real eyes that saw it and real hands that touched the resurrection of the dead. The gospel is also not a good opinion. It's good news because it's real. See, a good opinion would be something like me saying, Grand Old Creamery here in St. Paul, that's the best ice cream in the whole city. But some of you could push back. No, I think it's DQ. No, I think it's Nelson's. You go down on Snelling and they load you up kid size cones the size of you, right? That's, that's the better place to go. So then you have this debate. 
because it's a matter of opinion and personal preference. Well, that's not the gospel. It's not a good opinion. It's good news. It'd be more equivalent to me saying something like, well, Grand Old Creamery, they're giving out free ice cream today. Well, either they are or they aren't. You go down there, and if it corresponds to reality, and that's exactly what's going on, then it's true. And that's the claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a good opinion. It's good news. We claim that this actually happened in history, and not only did Jesus raise from the dead, but he continues to live. He continues to reign over his church, and he's pouring out his spirit and awakening dead faith from the grave so that people are still believing in him, confessing him, and getting baptized, and taking the table, and witnessing, and worshiping Jesus, because Jesus is still on the move through the power of his spirit, because he rose from the dead. Now, Paul also says this weird phrase that he's abnormally born, and he starts unpacking what he means by that in verses 9 to 11, and it's to highlight God's grace in his life, despite Paul's weakness, despite his inability to save himself, despite his background. So let's turn to the last part where Paul deeply reflects on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. For I am the least of the apostles, and don't even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. Why does Paul think he's the least of the apostles? Doesn't even be deserve to be called an apostle. And his answer is, is because of his past. He persecuted the church of Christ. Remember, before Paul encountered Christ, he made life miserable for Christians. He more than bullied them. He led mobs that went around house to house, dragging out Christians in order to put them in prison. He even oversaw the execution of Christians, and his former life was one where he was just breathing out every day of his life murderous threats against Christ's people. And what happened to Paul? This person that not only did these things to the church, but we know because Jesus said this to him, you are doing these things to me. It's not that you just hate these people, you hate me. So what happened to him? Well, by God's grace, Paul went from breathing out murderous threats against Christians to proclaiming the gospel. He went from persecutor of the church to apostle of Christ. Christ opened his blind eyes of his heart to believe in the gospel. He got baptized, and now he's immersed in the life of Christ because of God's grace. That's his story. That's his background. That's how we should be reflecting deeply about the gospel in our life. And in a gathering this size on a time like Easter, I do want to pause and make an appeal to a couple different people who may be in here that need to hear this, that need to reflect deeply on God's grace, because there might be some folks here that feel like you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Maybe you think that you've done something and because of the sin that you've committed, that God is not interested in saving you, that you're beyond his reach, that the sins you've committed are so bad that God wouldn't even consider you to be his. Well, I've got good news, because this is what Paul is saying, that the stains of your sin 
are no match for the cleansing power of Christ's blood. God's grace is for you this morning. Come back to him. Or maybe you're someone that you grew up in church and like a prodigal son or daughter, you've wandered off the path and you've been away from home a long time. God the Father isn't waiting for you to get your life together. You don't have to figure out the perfect words to say to him to express your regret. Just turn and come home because God's grace will come running up the road to meet you and to celebrate your return. God's grace is for you. And that's the grace that came from Paul, to Paul and for Paul through the power of the resurrected Christ. And God's grace in Paul didn't just lead to a passive life. He says that he gave his life to the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he's not saying here that he's taking credit for any of this because the gospel, he says, is going to go ahead whether I'm preaching it or somebody else. All that matters to him is that the gospel is being preached and people are believing in that gospel. Because for Paul, since the resurrection really happened, then all that matters is that the gospel is heard so that those who don't currently worship Jesus will start doing so. That is his passion in this life. That's the enthusiasm that I want to get in my life, in your life, that type of enthusiasm for the gospel as we reflect on it again and remember God's grace to us. People are enthusiastic about a lot of things nowadays. I was reminded of this because I am, um, but it, what's in second place in my life in terms of something that's really exciting, Jesus' resurrection, it's always up there. Number two is that the T-Wolves are in the playoffs. And this has been a long, thank you, thank you. There's, no, there's, there's a few chosen of us that are still fans because it's been a long time, right? Thank you, brother, thank you, brother. We'll fellowship later, man. Uh, it's been a long time. We had, we had this little bit of a, a, a playoff tournament like a couple years ago. Really, it's been since 2004. I was in college in 2004. I'm a middle-aged man right now. It's been a long, long time. But one thing that's been curious about the last two games is a play-in game where they got into the playoffs and then they won their first playoff game. At both games, protesters show up for the same cause. And I need to remind you that the first play-in game, that was in Minneapolis. The first playoff game was in Memphis. Tip, different protesters, but the same cause. At the Minneapolis game, somebody shows up to protest, and the way that she did it was she put super glue on her hands and then went and sat underneath the hoop on the court to try to glue herself to the court. And she was wearing a t-shirt that says, Glenn Taylor, who's the part owner of the Timberwolves, roasts animals alive. And she's drawing attention to this reality that if you didn't know this, uh, bird flu is going around in our state. Uh, through a lot of farms that own chickens, so some of them are being put down uh, because we're trying to prevent the spread of that to more and more livestock. So that's what they were protesting. But then in Memphis, a different protester, same t-shirt, came onto the court. This time, since she probably knew the glue thing didn't work, she chained herself to the hoop, and they had to pry her off that chain and carry her out. And I respect the enthusiasm, although the cause is kind of curious. I don't think anybody wants bird flu being spread around. But 
the pivot I'm about to make isn't that we should do the same thing as Christians. Go chain yourself for the gospel at a basketball game. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not trying to call you to fundamentalism. As one pastor once said, that fundamentalism is not fun, but it sure is mental, all right? So I'm not, <laughs> not calling you to that, all right? That's not what I'm doing. But I am advocating for this type of enthusiasm, but the way that we protest is very different as Christians. We protest against sin, death, and evil through the power of love. We protest right now when we gather in the name of Jesus who raised from the dead, and we protest for things like when we turn the other cheek, when evil slaps us. That's what we're doing, and we're not only protesting, but we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming this message that is of first importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared. And it's this powerful gospel that's still at work today and is the solution to everything that is broken in our world and in our own heart right now. It's all that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ through this, through this Holy Spirit, and he's accomplishing it now in today's time with the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. No cap. <laughs>